Thank you, Andrew. And it's a real honour to be with everyone this morning, if a little weird in the setup that we're in. We're going to be focusing this morning on Genesis 22. And a picture's going to flash up on the screen behind of a, a famous painting of this story. And it's a famous painting of Genesis 22, which is Abraham's sacrifice or potential sacrifice of Isaac at God's request. The weirdest story that we can read and the most offensive to our minds. What kind of God asks a father to sacrifice his son? And what kind of father agrees to that. And and this is an offensive story if we don't have the right lens through which to understand Abraham's God. And so I want to introduce what we're talking about by first of all talking about lenses. Now this is quite pertinent for me because um, I can't see very well with these glasses. I'm due new glasses and buying glasses in a pandemic is really, really hard. And I was hoping to have my daughter-in-law, Martha, who's an optometrist, come with me. But because of COVID, she wasn't allowed to. And so I visit an optician's guy has to stay outside. I have my temperature taken before I go in. I'm wearing a mask. I'm socially distanced. And I'm introduced to the world of lenses. I had no idea how complicated it was. And if you've ever seen the Michael McIntyre sketch... Uh, of visiting the opticians, I really recommend it. It's hilarious. But I felt like Michael McIntyre, I'm in the opticians, and I'm like, I am here because you are the expert. You know about eyes, you know about lenses. And I just want to see. And that's what I wanted. But the optometrist was telling me all these things about lenses. I had Martha, my daughter-in-law, who is an optometrist, on the phone, on, on WhatsApp, video and she was translating for me so I could understand all this lens talk and it made me think about lenses because it's so important that we have the right lens in order to be able to see clearly. So what's the lens that we need to be able to really understand this very difficult passage of scripture? I want to now do some spiritual optometry uh, which is something I've just completely made up on the spot. And so here's the lens that I'm offering for us to to view and understand this story. And the first bit of the lens is Genesis 3, when we have the, the story of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as was his custom. And there's this picture of him meeting with with Adam and Eve. There's this picture of reciprocity. There's this image of, of knowing and being known, of seeing and being seen. There's this lovely image of relationship and authentic connection. And then in Psalm 103, we're told that, that God made his deeds known to Israel, but he made his ways known to Moses. And by his ways, it means his character, who he was. And we're also told in Exodus that that God spoke to Moses as a person speaks to their friend. Again, this picture of intimacy, of knowing and being known and, and connection. And then in John 14, there's one of, for me, it's a really haunting verse of scripture where Jesus is with his disciples. He's been with them for some time. And Philip says to him, Jesus, could you just show us the Father? Now, this is the God-man. This is the man that, that God in all his fullness dwells in bodily form. And, and Jesus just looks at Philip and says, Philip, don't you know me? Don't you know who I am? Even though I've been with you all this time, don't you know me? And then in Mark 4, we've got this other image, and there's another picture that goes with that, of of Jesus. And he's asleep on a boat, and and his disciples encounter a storm. And they're really frightened. It's a massive storm, and Jesus is sleeping. And they, they wake him up, and they say, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care? We're so afraid. And Jesus wakes up, and he rebukes the storm, and he says, you of little faith... 
And I always thought that Jesus was challenging their lack of belief in his power. But I realise I've misunderstood that. And what he was questioning was, don't, don't you know who I am? Don't you trust me? Where's your faith? How can you say, don't you care about me? And then, of course, in John 15, we've got that wonderful, wonderful sentence. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that picture of the crucifixion and Jesus on the cross, the, the expect, this is how much we're loved. And so if we're really going to understand Abraham's journey, we need to understand it through the lens of this God who wants to be known and seen, who wants us to be certain of his affection towards us and his goodness. And the degree to which we really are persuaded and experience and trust in the goodness of God is the degree to which we will be able to live a life of radical discipleship. And so this is an unfolding story of Abraham learning and understanding about the goodness of God that enabled him to be radically trustful, not just radically obedient. So we're going to unpack this and I'm going to do a whistle-stop tour of um, several chapters in Genesis to uh, begin to unpack and understand how Abraham is understanding this God and knowing this God. So I'm going to start in Genesis 11 and the reason I'm starting there is because what I plan to do is also weave in um, our own story and my own journey along with Abraham's. So I'm going to sort of weave them together. And so what we read in chapter 11 is that Abraham's father is called Terah. And he had three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And what's interesting, the Bible tells us here that, that Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. And that must have been devastating for Terah. And we're also told that in verse 31, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran. And actually Lot would have been very important to Abraham. That was his nephew, the son of his dead brother. And that kind of explains why Abram was so connected with Lot. But together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Now this is interesting. So Terah also sets out for Canaan. But it says this, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. And I listened to a talk that I wish I'd never heard because it really has impacted my life. And you know when you hear a truth and it resonates with your spirit and then you think, I wish I didn't know that. I wish I hadn't heard that. But you have heard it and it has landed. And this talk by Katia Adams really landed with my spirit. And she opened the scripture up and she said, isn't it interesting that terror stopped at the place that had the same name as the son that had died. And she made this point that our unprocessed pain can actually stop us from moving into the promises that God's got for us. And I just invite you to bookmark that because I'm going to come back to it. It's relevant to our personal story. So Genesis 12, which was unpacked for us last week by Chris, the call of Abraham when the Lord says to him, go from your country and your people, leave it all and go to the land that I will show you. And Chris said last week, you know, that, that call from God must have been something very obvious and clear for Abraham to just up sticks and leave with everything he owned. We don't know how God did speak to Abraham, but we do know it must have been pretty clear to do something so drastic. And I think the last time that I did something so drastic was probably when uh, I was in Bethel. I'd gone for a course and I really sensed that God was saying it's time to, to leave everything, sell your home. It's time for Guy to give up his job and uh, to come here for a time of equipping. And unlike Abraham, who just said, okay then, I'll do that, um, I just said, no, I don't think so. Um, doesn't sound like a great plan at all. 
um, because we have a life to think about, we have a pension to think about, we have security to think about. And um, But still it wouldn't go away. It was a nagging feeling in my spirit. We were, it, we, it was an unsettledness, a holy unsettledness. We were supposed to do this. And so I kind of made a deal and I said, okay, God, if this is you, if this is you, and it's not some Dorito that I had last night, then you need to tell Guy, you need to tell him yourself. And I felt fairly smug uh, because, you see, I know Guy really, really well, really well, much better than God. And Guy had worked for the same company for 42 years. He'd had the same breakfast for about 50 of his 64 years. He, he doesn't do change. And so I was pretty confident in this deal. And so when I returned from Bethel and Guy said, I feel God saying it's time to, to leave my job and trust him for the what next, I was like, okay, okay, that's, that's pretty clear. And so that's why we, we did what Abraham did and we sold up and we left. Now, the interesting thing about what happened next, so, so Abraham's had this great promise from God, hasn't he? I'll make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What a promise that he's holding on to. Wow. And then the next thing we read is Abraham in Egypt. Sorry, Abraham, he hasn't had his name changed yet. And there he is, and we read, oh my goodness, it's a time of famine, it's a time of challenge. And Abraham says, Abraham says, oh gosh, when they see what a beautiful woman you are, he says to Sarai, when they see you, then they're going to kill me, but will let you live. So let's say you're my sister. That's actually half truth. Sarai was his half sister. It happened a lot in those days. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake. And so that's what happened. And Pharaoh saw she was beautiful, and so she was taken to be one of Pharaoh's wives. Now, hang on a minute. Here we have Abraham, the father of faith, who's received this great promise from God, behaving in a fearful way, a deceitful way, and lying. And this is really interesting, because so often we read these great people in the Bible, and we say... They're so amazing. And we, we do it with other people, don't we? Um, we? We sometimes say, Chris and Alice, so amazing. Annie and Silas are so amazing. And I say, Heidi Baker, so amazing. And I want to suggest to you that when we say people are so amazing, it sounds like we're being really complimentary. But actually what we're doing is we are othering them. What we're doing is we're saying they are in this category called amazing and different kinds of rules apply to them than to me. And so when I other someone and I put them in an amazing category, I insulate my own heart and I protect my life from being impacted by theirs. So there's a challenge. And so what I would encourage you to do is next time you say someone's amazing... Add the line, and so am I. And I remember othering Heidi Baker. I do it a lot. I greatly admire her. And I was on an airplane with her, and we were sitting next to each other, and we had an hour and a half to chat. And as we chatted, I realised, oh my goodness, she has family issues, stuff happens in her family, just like mine. And I realised, oh my goodness, she is just like me. Who knew? And if she's just like me, that means that somehow I I can allow my heart and my life to be impacted by her radical discipleship. There's a challenge. So here's Abraham, who is amazing, as I am, um, but he's also fearful, deceitful, and a liar. And he has this promise, but then in Egypt it all goes pear-shaped. And I can relate to that because when we came back from Bethel, we landed here in Bristol and we were going for this property called Old Church Farm. And we were going to buy it with Joe and Jez and some others and we were all so excited. And then it all fell through and life went very pear-shaped. 
And I think I experienced my own famine in, in a way. And, and I experienced a time of depression and wondering, who is this God that we had thought was so good? How can I be in this situation, in this city where I'm not known, where I don't have a church, where I don't have a car, where I don't have a role? And in a household that I'm no longer the, the mum of, if you like, I'm just one of a community. So difficult. And I must have been so difficult to live with because I was just in some kind of emotional freefall. It was really, really hard to hold on to the goodness of God. So we read on through the story of Abraham and Abraham, sorry, I keep doing that. And even after he screwed up in Egypt and got it all wrong, we still read in uh, the next chapter, the Lord blessing him and saying, look around you from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could not be counted. That, that's amazing. So even though he lied and he deceived and, and, and Pharaoh had been not been blessed because of it, and eventually he said to Abraham, please leave because you have lied to me and you have brought misfortune on me, please leave. Still, this God is affirming his promise to, to Abraham, which is incredible. And chapter 14 tells us about Abraham, how he rescues Lot. And, and then in chapter 15, we have this reaffirmation of covenant. And God's saying to Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. And Abraham never really questions the sovereignty of God, the, the might or the power of God. But he does question his goodness and affection towards him. And he says... Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Elise of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. What is Abraham doing? Well, he's doing what any of us do. We lean on our own understanding. And that was Abraham's understanding. I'm an old man. This hasn't happened. The only way there's going to be any inheritance is a, a servant in my house. And God says, no, this man won't be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then the promise just gets bigger. And he says, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And then it says, Abraham, believe the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. So he believed what God was saying to him. He believed that God, God could do anything. He didn't really question God's sovereignty. But, but what about his goodness? What about his affection towards him? Because in chapter 16, we then have Sarai coming to him and saying, look, I've borne no children. I'm old. You're old. So the Lord has kept me from having children. So sleep with my servant Hagar. And let's see if we can help God out with his promise. And so Abraham, Abraham agrees to what Sarai has said. He sleeps with Hagar and she conceives. And as soon as she's pregnant, it all goes wrong again. And uh, Sarai blames him, saying, you're responsible now because um, it's your fault that I feel she's despising me and you're to blame. Um, we see this happens in marriage a lot. It's called the blame game. We're really good at it. So, and what's interesting about the kind, again, this is unfolding, the character of God, who is this God? And, and so Hagar is dismissed and she goes off and she's desperate. And the Lord speaks to her and says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And so this God is saying, I'm going to bless you. Even though Abraham was working from a place of his own understanding, I'm still going to bless. I'm still going to bless. And she says, oh, this is the God who sees me. This is the God who knows. And she actually returns to the household and Ishmael is born. And then in chapter 17, we've got Abraham, 99 years old. So it's now 11 years since he first had the promise from God. 
And he makes a covenant with him again. He changes his name to Abraham. He tells him he's going to be the father of many nations. So this promise is just getting bigger and bigger. And that Sarai, his wife, will no longer be called Sarai, but Sarah, because she will be the mother of many nations. And what does Abraham do? He falls down and he laughs. Now, he's laughing not because this is funny, but he's laughing because this is preposterous. How, how could a God be that good to, to bless him in this way in his old age? And so he says to God, look, if only Ishmael could live under your blessing, could you not just bless the plan B? And God says, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son. You will call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Isn't that lovely? I've heard you. And I will surely bless him. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. And then he says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And Abraham is beginning to appreciate and understand the goodness of of God. The God who says, this wasn't my plan, this was you in your understanding, but you know, I'm going to bless that, but also I'm reaffirming my promise to you, that you will have a son by Sarah. And then in chapter 18, we have these important visitors, which I, I take to be angelic visitations. And it's funny because you know when someone comes to your house and you don't get much notice and you rush around, we all do it, don't we? We rush around because we don't want people to see we normally live like this. So we tidy everything up and we want things to look super duper for when they arrive. And, and Abraham is a bit like that. These really important visitors and they're rushing around. He's saying to Sarah, quick, the finest bread, quick, you know, let's get this absolutely perfect for these visitors. And then they say this, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah's listening and she laughs. And her laughter is a bit different to the laughter of Abraham. It's the laughter of bitterness. And she's saying, now, when I'm in 90, when I am old, when I am post-menopausal, now I will have this pleasure... I don't think so. You are too late. It's too late. It's hopeless. It's the laughter of bitterness. And we know, we know that the whole of the gospel message, because we have the whole revelation here, that actually there is no such thing as hopelessness, that it's never too late. And we're reminded of the story of Lazarus when he'd been in the tomb for three days and Jesus arrives and the sisters say, oh, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. You're, you're too late. And we know he calls Lazarus out of the grave. And he walks out in his grave clothes. But it's never too late. But Sarah was bitter. And I just need to grab my journal at this point, stand in the right place. Because I don't know about you, but I sometimes get really bitter about what's happening with my relationship with God. And we moved from where we were uh, to a, this tiny flat um, in which I just got downer and downer. I think I was close to being actually depressed. I was waking up crying most days. I was like, where is God? What is he saying? And we felt we were stewarding some kind of promise about the kind of place that God had for us, a place of retreat, a place that couples could come to, a place where Bethel alumni could land and be launched from. And we'd had words, we'd had um, encounters where we felt God had spoken, but yet we were seeing none of it. And we then moved into a rental, um, a rectory in Backwell. And it was an interregnum, so we were there until they appointed the next vicar. And then they they appointed the next vicar. And uh, I had the joy of uh, when she was interviewed, uh, showing her around the rectory I didn't want to leave. 
And I'll be honest, I was very tempted to say to her, it's all right apart from the rats and, and the drip and the mould, um, and kind of put her off. I, I didn't do that. Um, and I did sell the house to her. She got the job, and we got notice to leave. Um, and this journal entry was written when we had 10 weeks to go, 10 weeks before we had to get out. We had nowhere else to go, and I was raging with God. And I wrote several pages of raging and uh, culminating in this. I said, so I'm accusing you, God, of not caring enough, loving enough, acting quickly enough. I'm upset and angry, and the language of faith and trust sounds hollow to my ears and disingenuous to my heart. I feel like I'm marking time for an uncertain end in an unsure way. What do you want of me anyway? I think that's it, dot, 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 for now. The implication is, I will be back. <laughs> um, and this is what I sense God saying. Remember when your children were so upset that you just couldn't reason with them. You couldn't offer anything that would calm or help. All you could do was hold them and wait until their sobs had subsided and they relaxed into your embrace, spent and exhausted. That is what I do with you. I hold you and cherish you. I protect you while you rage. And I wait until your sobs have subsided and you are spent. I wait until that moment when you relax into my arms. I wait until your agitated heart is calm and then I speak. Right now, I'm holding you. I've got you and you are safe. That's all you need to know right now. And we were up against it. We rang a moving company and we said, we need to book a date for moving. And they said, where are you going? And we said, we don't know. Hopefully within a five mile radius of where we are now, but we didn't know. And I identify with Sarah. I identify with her hearing about this promise and thinking, you're, you're too late too late we read on and again there's this unfolding story of of Abraham daring to believe that he can trust in this God that he's beginning to know and there's the whole piece where where God says shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do he will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him and so he does, uh, the Lord says, I will tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And he speaks to him about Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's this lovely interchange between Abraham and, and God, where Abraham's saying, surely you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. Far be it from you to do that. Surely you're the God who, who does the right and just thing. Listen to his words. He's beginning to understand who this God is. And he says, you know, if there were 50 righteous people, would you destroy it? And God says, no, I wouldn't destroy it for 50. And then he says, well, what about 45? And there's this wonderful exchange where he goes down to 10 each time. God's saying, no, if I find 10 righteous people, I, I will not, not destroy it. And what this lovely exchange is telling us is that Abraham is learning that he can speak with God a bit like Moses spoke with him. He's beginning to understand God's ways. He's beginning to understand God's character and his heart towards him. Then we flip through into chapter 20. <laughs> Unbelievably, Abraham makes the exact same mistake that he made in Egypt. It's hard to believe. And, and there he is. And um, Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while he stayed in Gerar. And there, Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. 
Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. What? This is incredible. Hasn't Abraham learnt from Egypt? Here he is making the same mistake. And isn't this so encouraging? Because Abraham is so amazing, as am I. And he is so flawed, as am I. And yet God still pursues him passionately and seeks to do him good and to bless him. And in chapter 21, we have the birth of Isaac, the culmination of everything that's been promised that's taken over 11 years. It says the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. The Lord did what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. How amazing is this? And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. This is no longer the laughter of bitterness or incredulity. This is the laughter of joy, of a promise fulfilled. It's wonderful, wonderful to read. Um, and also, I just want to say as well on this, that Hagar seems to be getting a raw deal when Sarah sends her away and says, take Ishmael away. She says, he's, he's not going to inherit anything. Take, take him from my sight. I now have my son. And, uh, and God meets with Hagar and says, lift the boy up and take him by the hand. I will make him into a great nation. So this passionate pursuing God pursues Hagar and reassures her because that's the kind of good God that he is. And now we come to the passage, Genesis 22, which this whole unfolding revelation of the goodness as God has taken us to. And that's why it's so important we have that context. So we're told sometime later God tested Abraham. We don't know how long later. There are some stories that depict Isaac as a child. It's more likely he was a teenager or young man. And he says to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God says, take your son your only son, whom you love. I mean, I mean, why don't we just rub it in a bit more? Isaac, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. There's just a couple of things to say here. One, the idea of child sacrifice wasn't uncommon in primitive religion. It happened in worship of Baal. So it's not something that would have been foreign to Abraham. It's something that Clearly, in scriptures that follow, God says is abhorrent to him. But it's not a strange, that strange a request for Abraham, um, as it is to us reading about it. But the other thing as I read this, I don't know about you, but I kind of get prophetic goosebumps as I begin to read this. This feels like a very pregnant passage, because who takes their only son who they love and gives them? as a sacrifice. I mean, that makes me kind of a bit goosebumpy. But let's, let's read on. So early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. This is different. This is a different Abraham. This, he's not questioning God. He's not asking Sarah. That was probably wise. Probably wise not to ask Sarah and mention it to her. But this is so different. This is different to Egypt when he lied about who Sarah was to Pharaoh. This is different when he made the same mistake with the king of Gerar and lied again. This is different with the covenant making he did with God where God promised that he would have a son and he ends up sleeping with Hagar in order to kind of help God out. This is different from when he laughed when God promised that he would be blessed and said, if only Ishmael could live under your blessing. See, it's as interesting what Abraham is not doing as what he is doing. He's not saying, let's keep Isaac. Why don't we just sacrifice Ishmael? Um, And let's face it, he's capable of bargaining with God. He did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's not doing it here. Why? Why is he behaving so uncharacteristically like himself? And I think we're coming up to the big clue. So verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now again, I don't know about you, but I've got prophetic goosebumps. Something else happened on the third day. 
um, when Jesus was resurrected. There's something about the three. It kind of like, ooh, I don't understand that, but I've got goosebumps thinking about it. But here we are, verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. What? We will worship and then we will come back to you. Okay, so Abraham believes that he's going to somehow come back with Isaac because he so trusts in this God, this good God that he has come to know and walk with. It's unthinkable that he wouldn't come back. He's putting so much weight on the promise of God and not his understanding of the situation. Hebrews 11 gives us a little bit of a clue about what Abraham might have been thinking. Of course, we don't know. But in Hebrews 11, it says, you know, he might have reasoned that God could bring Isaac back from the dead and resurrect him. We don't know what was in Abraham's mind. We just know he is behaving uncharacteristically. This radical obedience seems to be founded on a newfound radical trust. So let's read on. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Again, prophetic goosebumps. Who else was carrying the instrument of sacrifice on his back? He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Again, prophetic goosebumps. What did John the Baptist say of Jesus when he saw him? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't know the significance. All I'm saying is I've got goosebumps. So the two of them go on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What's happening here? Abraham no more understands this than he understood the original promise of God. We know that, else he wouldn't have slept with Hagar. He didn't understand. He was leaning on his own understanding. So he doesn't understand why God would ask him to sacrifice his son. But he does know something else. He knows that God is good. He is persuaded of God's affection for him. So he's prepared to put everything on the line for this God, trusting in his goodness. Trusting more in the goodness of God and his promise and his word than on his own understanding. His radical obedience has landed on radical trust. There's a story um, told, uh, it's a true story of Charles Blondin. And I think this is in the 18th century. And he was a very, very famous tightrope walker. Some say, you know, world-class tightrope walker. And he would tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. And everybody, but he didn't just walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He walked across with a man on his back. He, he walked across and made an omelette um, halfway over and ate it. Um, incredible, incredible feats. And, and this one particular day, he, he pushed his wheelbarrow over the tightrope and the crowds were cheering oh, yay yay and he got the other side and he said who believes who believes that I can put a man in this wheelbarrow and wheelbarrow him across on this tightrope across Niagara Falls and they all went yeah 
yes, yes, we believe you can do that. That's fantastic. Yes, 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 yes. And then he said this, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd went strangely quiet. And you know, so with us, it's very easy, isn't it, to sing our songs of praise. He is so good. He is so good. And we can sing our praise. But would we get in the wheelbarrow? Would we live a life of radical obedience? And this is where our story weaves in because we went from the rectory to the house we're in now, in the Birches. Um, it was an amazing provision from the Lord and we were there all during lockdown and because it was a big house we were able to go with our son and our daughter-in-law and then our other son and his wife and their two new babies um, were able to join us and we were all able to work from home and it was an incredible blessed time. Um, and then they um, they went, oh, our, our daughter found she was pregnant during lockdown, which was so exciting. More grandchildren, you know, our cup runneth over. Um, so, so they, understandably, are having their first baby, so they want to move into their own place and, and establish their own family. Alex and Martha go back to their flat once the restrictions ease and lockdown ends. And I'm looking around thinking, okay, it's been three years, Lord. I've been faithful for three years. But enough's enough. It's time. It's time for, for, for me to have my own home. I have battled with you. I have argued with you. I have cried. I have wailed. I have wailed on some of you. Um, now, now, now is the time. And uh, Guy and I were having lots of arguments about this. And, and Guy was wanting to trust God for this, this promise. But it all seemed a bit vague to me. This promise. I was laughing. And not because I thought it was funny. I was laughing because how is this going to happen? How are we going to have this retreat place? Our money is going down and down. It's going the wrong way. It's too late. Um, we went to see Annie and Silas and I, and I whinged and wailed at them too. And they kindly gave us tea and uh, cake and prayed for us and were amazing. And soon after that, we found a house. It wasn't, it wasn't the house, but it was called Middle Barn and it was, it was, it was a house. It would have enabled us to do all that we wanted to do. It, it didn't feel quite the house that, that God had put in our hearts, but we reasoned with our own understanding that this was a place that we could wait and it was sensible to wait here because here we could own a property outright. And here where we are, we're spending all this money on rent. So this seemed a good thing to do. So we put in an offer and it was accepted. And we thought, great, that's a sign. This is clearly the right thing. This is what we need to be doing. And if, if God doesn't come through for us while we're here, it's a bit of an inconvenience. Um, if God doesn't come through for us where we are now, we're totally screwed. So we reasoned, let's, let's buy this house. The only thing was, I had a spiritual niggle. Like I had spiritual goosebumps, I had spiritual niggles. And the first niggle relates to where we started this whole conversation this morning. Back with Abraham's father, Terah. Do you remember he had a son, Haran, who died? And then Terah sets out for Canaan, but he stops at a place called Haran, which had the same name as his dead son. He stopped at the place of his unprocessed pain. And I heard that message from Katia Adams. It's the message I wished I hadn't heard. Because Middle Barn was part of a group of cottages called Church Farm Cottages. What was the house that we were going to buy when we came to Bristol that heralded this whole kind of free fall and depression and angst for me? Old Church Farm. And I thought, oh, I wish I hadn't heard that talk. It was a niggle. It was a little niggle. The other little niggle, and Esther's going to find out this on a live broadcast, because Esther, you were also part of my spiritual niggle. Um, we sent out to lots of people um, a, sort of a, a prayer, sort of um, update on what was happening, and, uh, and Esther came back with a voicemail, and she said, this is brilliant, I'm so happy, this is brilliant. Um, and then she said something else. She said, actually, when you're paying out rent, it just feels like you're wasting money. At least... That's how I feel. And that landed for me because what I wanted to do was go back to Esther and say, no, Esther, no. No, nothing is wasted when we are moving in God's purposes. 
and when we're responding to his invitation. Nothing is wasted. But I couldn't go back and say that. Why couldn't I say that? Because I was about to go for a safer option. I was about to buy a house, which would mean I was paying no rent. I didn't have those outgoings. It bothered me. It niggled me because I am the kind of person that loves to lead by example. I am the kind of person that loves to be authentic in how I live life. I can't say something to someone that I'm not prepared to do myself. It bothered me that I couldn't go back to Esther and encourage her. And there were a few other niggles. Guy and I went away in a caravan. I reviewed the prophetic words we'd been given. And I felt uncomfortable in my spirit. But not uncomfortable enough to mention it to Guy. Because I wanted a house. It's been a long time. I want to make a home. I want to have a wood-burning stove. I want to have a kitchen that I love. There's lots of things that I want. So I didn't mention it to him. And then one day he came up um, and he bringing you my cup of tea. We all everything's going ahead by this point. You know, there's lawyers and surveyors and people. Uh, the, the, the wheels are in motion. And he comes up with a cup of tea. He sits on the bed and he said, "I've got a heaviness in my spirit." And I said, "Tell me about it." And he began to explain that he had just some checks in his spirit. Were we doing the right thing? And he couldn't explain it. And as I listened to him. I just had that, oh, I can't ignore this anymore. And so I admitted to Guy that I also had some checks in my spirit. And we agreed together, okay, let's do this. Let's get in the wheelbarrow. Let's take God at his word. Let's trust that he is as good as we know him to be, as we're understanding him to be. Let's be radically obedient. Let's get in the wheelbarrow. And then before you think I'm too amazing, and so are you, um, I then said to Guy, you know, what are we going to say to the agent? This is so embarrassing. I said, I know. Let's say, let's say family issues we've had to pull out. I mean, come on, there's precedent for lying, isn't there? Um, So Guy said, no, 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 I'm just going to tell the truth. So he ran the agent. He said, we prayed. We believe that God has got something else for us and we want to wait. We'll understand if you don't want to work with us again. Um, We have looked at over 80 houses, not with this one agent, but over 80 houses we've looked at. Um, She just said, no, no, you you must do, do the right thing. What happens, let's go back to Abraham. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And then this bit, because he said that before, hasn't he? He's reaffirming the promises already made. Then he says, this, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because there's an, this such an important point here about legacy. The choices we make to be radically obedient have a ripple effect on our families and their families. And something that's in, in my heart is I, I want to leave a legacy, not just for my children, but for their children and for Esther. And then the final, verse 19, then Abraham returned to his servants, as he knew he would. And just an encouragement, we are in the middle of this journey. I'm not here telling you we have reached the promise. We haven't, we're still waiting for what we feel God has for us. But after we made this decision and we told the agent, we also had to tell an architect who was going to help us, somebody we've never met. He's the father of someone I coached. And, um, and we said, we're so sorry. How embarrassing. We've sent you all the plans and you've put some thought into this and now we're telling you we're pulling out. And he sent us this email. He said, the kingdom of God is real and it exists. Our privilege is to inhabit that kingdom and live it every day. You are both doing that. And as a fellow member, I am grateful. This is a thought, but if a piece of land came in view... I would be pleased to design a purpose-built eco-home as clothing on you both 
and the call you have from the God we both seek to serve. And I don't know what that means. I don't know whether we're going to somehow find some land. I mean, who knows? But I do know that if God can provide an architect willing to build us a house to clothe our vision, then he can provide whatever is needed. I can trust him. And so this is our invitation. In what areas of your life is God challenging you to trust him? How is he calling you into the wheelbarrow? And the other thing is, and this is from Katia Adams, I can claim no credit for this. And she says this, we have a choice in this life. We can choose the way of understanding or we can choose the way of trust. God will bless both. He blessed Abraham when he went the way of understanding and he brought Ishmael into the world. He blessed Ishmael. He blessed Hagar. You will be blessed if you choose the way of understanding. Or you can choose the way of trust. But adventure is only in one. What will you choose? And what difference will that mean for how you live your life now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have the privilege of the whole of Scripture. And we know that you are good. And Father, I pray that for all of us, you would give us a new revelation of your goodness so that we can have the kind of radical trust that precedes radical obedience. So Father, we just say, here we are. We're like Abraham. We're as amazing as he is with all his flaws and all his failings. But Father, would you give us a fresh understanding of who you are so that we are not just radically obedient, but we build it on radical trust based on a deep knowledge of your goodness and your affection towards us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Tanya. That was absolutely uh, fantastic. I encourage you to, to track back, look at that again. Yeah, I think that's amazing, the idea that God, God changed Sarah's laughter from one of bitterness to one of fulfilled joy. So um, thanks for being with us. It's been great to be with you. Uh, please do say hello, get in touch. If you're new, send us a message on Facebook or send us an email. And we look forward to connecting with you next week. All right, goodbye for now.